1: It's just before 1 a.m. on Thursday, the 13th of July, 1950, and in the lounge room of a dark old house in the Melbourne suburb of Heidelberg, two police officers are on the strangest stakeout of their careers. As fog swirls outside, Detective Ronald Rayner and Constable Charles Coombs are waiting for a prowling fiend. A fiend who's been frightening the people who live in this house frightening them with strange noises. Sharp rapping on the walls and windows at all hours of the night. These sounds come from the front and the back of the house, starting not long after sunset and sometimes continuing until close to sunrise. In a single night, the rapping might begin at 8 o'clock, stop for an hour and then start up again, shatter the silence once more around midnight and send shivers up spines one last time at 4 in the morning. Run outside, and every time, there's no one. It's mystifying, and it's terrifying. Who, or what, is causing these disturbances, and why? It's all the more sinister because the rich elderly widow who owns the house, she's on her deathbed. Is someone trying to speed her into the grave? The police simply don't know. In the past two weeks, police have gone from sceptical to set on catching the culprit. But despite doing foot patrols, drive-bys and drop-ins, Melbourne's boys in blue haven't seen anyone or anything. The closest they've come to catching him, her or it was about a week ago. That was when a couple of constables were in the house and heard knocking out the back. One of the coppers dashed through the front door and ran down the side of the house to find nothing. Tonight, the presence of Detective Rayner and Constable Coombs seems to have scared off the fiend because there hasn't been a sound. If it was going to happen, it would have happened by now. Then, at 1am, they hear it. Coming from the corner window near where the lady of the house lays dying. Faint at first, then louder, moving across the front of the house. Heart thumping, the officers creep to the front door. Detective Rayner has a torch in one hand and his police revolver in the other. Constable Coombs grips the front door handle and throws the door open so Detective Rayner can charge into the front yard. He sees a tall slender figure dressed in black near the hedges. He's wearing black gloves and what looks like a black hood. Seeing the detective, this sinister apparition bolts through a gap between the hedges. Detective Rayner yells for him to stop and gives chase, but the hooded intruder speeds away at a terrific pace. The officer fires a warning shot, but the fiend doesn't falter as he runs towards the back fence. The fence is six feet tall. Surely this is going to slow him down, but it doesn't. And with a single supernatural leap, the hooded figure jumps over the fence and vanishes into the darkness of a neighbor's property. He's gone for the moment, yet he'll be back. And his reign of terror will spread to other parts of Melbourne, ensuring The Fiend is known all over Australia in July 1950 as Jack the Rapper. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. A hooded prowler with seemingly supernatural abilities. An old dark house shrouded in the worst fog in 20 years. An ancient rich widow who lays dying. A dead husband... Two dead children and a mentally disturbed son. A niece with money problems. Nurses afraid that spirits are going bump in the night. Rains of stones and the ominous discovery of an axe. Flat-footed detectives, a haunted newspaper reporter, wild-eyed ghostbusters and torch-carrying mobs. The Jack the Rapper story sounds like something out of an old universal horror movie, but all of it really happened in suburban Melbourne 70 years ago. What's nearly as strange is that while all of Australia knew about this mystery back in 1950, it's since been so completely forgotten that it really is like it never happened. The Heights was a big two-storey, 12-room house built on a hill in Banksia Street in Heidelberg, nine miles northeast of Melbourne. An early Federation brick pile, it stood amid tall trees and an orchard on a huge corner block with a curved driveway. The decor in its spacious rooms, hand-carved furniture, thick pile carpets, mother-of-pearl lamps, and dozens of old and very valuable vases reflected the refined taste of its owner, Julietta Agatha Byrne. When the Jack the Rapper story broke in 1950, the newspapers pretty much reduced her to a few key points. She was Mrs. J.A. Byrne, 80 years old, long widowed, now dying, and, quote, fabulously wealthy. Of course, there was more to her than that, and we can piece parts of her life together from newspaper reports dating back to the 1890s and from records found at Ancestry.com.au. She was born Julietta Agatha Thompson in 1870. Known as Etta, she was the oldest daughter of James and Margaret Thompson of Lonsdale Street. The family was socially prominent enough for Etta's fashions to be noted in newspaper reports of balls and race days in the mid-1890s. It was around this time that she met Joseph Byrne. His parents had been well off, but they died when he was a boy and he was raised by his uncle in Carlton. Joseph had gone to the Christian Brothers School in Victoria Parade, and by the time he met Etta, he was on his way to being a success in the chemical manufacturing business. Two years older than her, he was a good prospect, sporty, religious and a well-educated man of means. They married in February 1896 in a lovely wedding at St. Francis's Church. Melbourne social pages recorded that the bride wore a gown of French grey silk with a shawl of white chiffon and a white wide-brimmed hat. One of Etta's bridesmaids was her niece Myra, and we'll be hearing more about her later. After they were married, Etta and Joseph went to Frankston and Phillip Island for a coastal honeymoon. Not long after, Etta was pregnant, and in January 1897, she gave birth to their son, Kevin. Daughter Kathleen followed around 1904, and son Leo came along a year later. Newspaper notices record Etta had another son in 1913, when she was 43 years old, but according to a death index found at Ancestry, he died that same year. By the time of that sad event, the family had been living in the heights in Banksia Street for about four years. This was back when Heidelberg was still a picturesque slice of the Melbourne countryside, best known as the birthplace of Australian Impressionism. Etta and Joseph's impressive house was on about an acre and a half of prime land. They were active in the local Catholic community and their children went to good Catholic schools. After Kevin, the eldest, finished at Xavier College, he intended to study medicine at Melbourne University. But the Great War changed that, and in January 1916, he enlisted. His parents threw him a farewell party at the Heights before he set sail in March, and the guest list, clergy, military, old boys, really attested to the family's social status. Corporal Kevin Byrne didn't have a good war. In fact, he didn't have much of a war at all. A month after he arrived in Egypt, the lad who'd wanted to be a doctor instead found himself being cared by them when he took ill and was hospitalised. At first, he just had stomach trouble, but soon Kevin was suffering measles, then pneumonia and a heart infection. By July 1916, he was on his way back to Australia, where he was discharged as medically unfit in September. We can't know for sure, but there's a good chance this weighed on him and contributed to his later problems, both mental and physical. Meanwhile, his younger sister Kathleen, whose nickname was Gurley, went to Melbourne University to study an arts degree, and she was active there in college life. In mid-1919, Gurley made her debut, and in the months that followed, she was noted in the social columns for her appearances at dances, accompanied by her fashionable mother, who'd been noted by these same papers a quarter of a century earlier. Not long after that, though, Gurley got sick and had to suspend her studies while she recovered. In early 1921, she and her father went on a grand tour of the East. It was the sort of travel Joseph could do now that he'd opted for an early retirement. He and Gurley saw China and Japan and came back to Melbourne in June 1921. Perhaps it was a premonition, perhaps it was just due diligence, but either way, in October, Joseph Byrne made his will. He didn't live to see the end of that year, taking ill and dying four days after Christmas at the age of just 53. Etta Byrne had just lost her husband of 25 years. Despite Joseph dying in the Heights, Etta wasn't going to move out of their beloved family home, yet she also wasn't about to molder away. In December 1922, Kathleen graduated from Melbourne University with a Bachelor of Arts degree, and in March the following year, she and Etta sailed for Europe. They had a fabulous time in Ireland, Scotland, Switzerland and Italy, but England, that was the highlight. In July 1923, mother and daughter attended a garden party at Buckingham Palace. There, in the company of Dame Nellie Melba, boxing promoter Hugh D. McIntosh, Gallipoli commander Sir Ian Hamilton and various lords and ladies, Kathleen and Etta were presented to the King and Queen. Around this time, Kathleen also met Michael Brady, an Irish-born surgeon with a medical practice and house in London's prestigious Harley Street. They married in 1924 and steadily became socially prominent in London. They were also particularly popular with visiting single women from Melbourne who wanted to make marriage matches with English medical men. In 1930, Kathleen gave birth to a son, Colin, and the next year Etta sailed to England to meet the boy. While she couldn't be present herself in 1937, Etta must have been thrilled that her daughter and son-in-law attended not one, but two parties at Buckingham Palace to celebrate the coronation of King George VI. Not a lot is known about Etta's youngest son, Leo. He worked as a manager and married a woman named Margaret MacIver in 1924. They had a son named Noel in honour of his dead baby brother and lived a quiet life in Ivanhoe, not far from his mother and his childhood home. As for what became of Etta's oldest son, Kevin, we know more about his life after World War I via correspondence found in his military records at the National Archives of Australia. Kevin had lost his AIF discharge paper, which was an important document proving his war service, and on numerous occasions he applied for a copy, only to lose that copy and then apply for yet another replacement. According to Kevin's statutory declarations, he lost his discharge papers when they were stolen at Mooney Valley Racecourse in March of 1917. Yet in another claim, he confessed to losing them there while drunk in April 1917. On another occasion he said it was April 1919, and yet in a further claim said June of 1920. He wrote one of these letters in 1936 from the notorious Lidcombe State Hospital in Western Sydney. This was a place of horror wards that were overcrowded with poorly treated geriatrics and mentally disturbed inmates. That he was resident there rather than at the heights with his mother suggests the two had become estranged. In 1940, Kevin wrote to army authorities asking for a replacement of his AIF discharge papers because the most recent copy he'd received had been burned in a Sydney house fire and that seemed to suggest at least that he'd been released from Lidcombe State Hospital. A year later, he wrote yet again, this time as an inmate of Liverpool State Hospital. Once he was released from there, he'd moved north to Lismore, where he worked as a cook and continued to drink too much. It's very likely that Kevin's ongoing problems caused Etta a lot of grief, but probably not on the level she would have experienced in March of 1942, when her beloved daughter Kathleen died at the age of 38 in London. Now in her early 70s and a widow for 20 years, Etta had outlived two of her children while another suffered serious mental and physical problems. At least she still had Leo and her daughter-in-law living nearby. She also had her niece, Myra Lehman, who'd been her bridesmaid all those years ago. As a young woman, Myra had moved to Perth, married and had a daughter. From 1926, she worked for the Mutual Life and Citizens Assurance Company, and she'd become superintendent of its women's division and have a staff of seven female employees. Myra's career was remarkable enough to merit a 1938 newspaper profile, but she also recently had made the newspapers for being a bankrupt who owed £112 to 21 different creditors. Myra told the court she'd gotten into trouble because she was estranged from her husband and had had to raise her daughter alone. Myra seemed to get through those financial problems and a decade later, she still had her career. In the late 1940s, Myra moved back to Melbourne. At first, she lived southeast of the city at Elstonwick, but then she moved north and into the front bedroom of the Heights. It's likely Myra did this to help care for Etta, who was now in her 80th year and in such poor health that she needed three live-in nurses. That wasn't the only change at the Heights. In 1949, Etta had subdivided the property and sold four prime blocks, increasing her bank balance considerably. She also now had boarders, a German couple, Mr. and Mrs. Horst Carrington, who lived in her four upstairs rooms. In January 1950, there was trouble at the heights. Some of Etta's jewellery, valued at £300, was stolen. A later newspaper report said police were summoned and when they learned that Etta had another £1,000 worth of jewellery stored in a shoebox, they asked the trustees to take charge of these valuables. Who these trustees were, son Leo, niece Myra or someone else, wasn't made clear. By the start of winter, Etta's health had worsened and it was clear she wasn't long for this world. Towards the end of June, she was in and out of consciousness. Then, on the last day of that month, the mysterious noises began. Etta wasn't aware of them, but Myra, the German couple, and her nurses were alarmed and increasingly frightened as the disturbances happened hour after hour, night after night. They called the police who, though thinking the residents of the Heights were imagining things, were nevertheless goodly enough to do foot patrols and to patrol in wireless cars. Then, Around the 7th of July, two constables visiting the house heard the noises for themselves and found no one outside. The disturbances happened just about every night. For example, on the night of Tuesday the 11th of July, there was knocking at 11.20, 11.30, 11.45, midnight, and then at 1.10 and 1.15 the following morning. Panicking, one of the nurses called the police and said she was speaking to them from the haunted house. Chances are she believed it. After all, Etta Byrne was close to death. Maybe the noises were being made by her dead husband, dead son and or dead daughter as they beckoned to her to join them in the spirit world. Hard-headed Heidelberg police didn't believe a ghost was responsible. The next night, Wednesday the 12th of July, Detective Ronald Rayner and Constable Charles Coombs were holed up in the lounge room, determined to bust this fiend who lurked in the ever of fog. At 1am the next morning, they heard the rapping. Out the front, revolver in his hand, Detective Rayner had his encounter. Later that day, in Sydney's Daily Telegraph, he was reported as saying, quote, I saw a lithe-looking man only a few yards away. I told him to stop, but he ran lightly towards a gap in the hedge and disappeared. Then, as I fired, I was amazed to see him neatly and lightly vault the fence in one simple leapfrog jump. He disappeared in the darkness. Melbourne's The Herald ran its story on that day's front page, under the headline, Knock Knock, Who Was There? Their Detective Rayner quote was different. I saw a lithe-looking man only a few yards away. He appeared to be dressed in black and to be wearing black gloves and something black around his head. I told him to stop, but he ran lightly towards a gap in the hedge and disappeared. When I got to the gap, I was amazed that he'd covered the 20 yards to a six-foot fence in an amazingly short time. He ran and climbed as quickly as a cat. Did the prowler jump or climb? Was he bareheaded or wearing something like a turban or a hood? The next day's Argus newspaper went with the best version in its story headlined, Hooded Man is Mystery Tapper. The article started, quote, A black-hooded prowler with the leaping ability of Spring-Heeled Jack is at large in the Heidelberg district. Spring-Heeled Jack was a mid-19th century English folklore demon who wore a cape and made gravity-defying leaps. Other sub-editors went with the Black Prowler, but the catchiest newspaper nickname he got was, of course, Jack the Rapper. Whatever you called him. Whether he jumped or climbed, was bareheaded, wore a turban or a hood, you'd still end up with the same question. Why? Why was this house being targeted? Was someone trying to speed Etta's death and get their hands on her money? Perhaps niece Myra? After all, she'd had financial problems in the past and had just recently moved back to Melbourne. Police ruled out this as a motive. For starters, Etta had been comatose for much of the past month and she had no idea about the disturbances. As for her will, it had been made some time ago, lodged with the executors and not changed since. Police considered other motives. Could it be the work of an unhinged person with a grudge? Perhaps son Kevin? After all, he'd spent time in mental hospitals. But he also lived a thousand miles away, and besides, he was now 53, in bad health, and unlikely to be jumping fences and outrunning police. There were other possibilities. That this was the work of a prankster who'd chosen the house at random and was laughing to himself because he had the cops running in circles. Another possibility was that this was being done by someone who wanted to scare whoever inherited the house into selling it quickly and cheaply because it had a bad reputation. A problem with both of these theories was Jack the Rapper's sheer bloody-minded persistence. He was coming out night after freezing night to strike at all hours. It was a lot to put yourself through for a laugh or for a property deal that had to be a long shot. And now Jack the Rapper was also at risk of being shot dead by the police. Maybe nearly being plugged gave him pause because when Detective Rayner and Senior Detective R. Newton lay in wait again on Thursday night, he didn't strike. Nor did Jack the Rapper hit the heights on Friday night. But maybe it wasn't the police presence. Maybe he was just too spooked to leave his own lair because Melbourne's fog was getting worse and worse. On Friday evening, the city was engulfed by the worst P-Super in 20 years. You couldn't see traffic lights through the murk, and the few people brave or stupid enough to venture onto the roads had to drive at 5 miles an hour. And even then, several had serious accidents including one fatality and some pretty bad injuries. A taxi driver described his journey from the city to Camberwell as being as nerve-wracking as walking through a minefield in the Western Desert during World War II. Incredibly, the fog was worse still on Saturday night, but this didn't stop Detective Rayner and Senior Detective Newton from turning up to guard the heights. All was quiet as the clock struck midnight. Then, at one o'clock the next morning, the detectives heard rapping. They rushed outside. No one. Not long after, the same scenario played out again. Here's how The Age reported it on Monday morning. On Saturday night, two detectives slept at the house. Shortly after 1am yesterday, they were disturbed by the tapping. They immediately went into the garden, but could not see the man owing to the thick blanket of fog. They heard him running, and though they could not see him, went after him, but he escaped. The prowler returned in less than an hour, carried out the same operation, but again escaped in the fog when police chased him. If anything, he became bolder. That Sunday night, while decent Melburnians were bedding down before the start of the working week, Jack the Rapper was putting in some long hours, striking at 8.25, at 8.40, 10.10, 10.20, and then, after a break of a few hours, he made four more visits between 1 and 2.40am. Melbourne's Herald reported, quote, On each occasion, a detective rushed out with a drawn revolver to find nothing. People living nearby were terrified, reported to be double-locking their doors and keeping guns close at hand. A woman who lived across the road from the Heights bought a Great Dane, which she tied up in her front yard every night. Locals might have been freaking, but other Melburnians were flocking to Heidelberg's haunted house. It was also a magnet for newspaper men. Solving the mystery could be the scoop of the year. So on the night of Monday the 17th of July, one of the Argus' star reporters went on a stakeout. This young journo's name was Jack Cannon. And as he was one of the few reporters with a byline attached to the Jack the Rapper stories, I wondered who he was and what he might have hoped to see that night. What I found amused and surprised me, and then sent chills up my spine. I'd actually written the next lines of this show to read something like, I can't say whether Jack Cannon believed in the supernatural, but I have a feeling that he might have had an open mind about the blurry line between life and any afterlife. My feeling about that was because of an earlier Argus newspaper story I found that wasn't by Jack, but was instead about him. It wasn't until a few days later that I stumbled on something that confirmed my feeling. And we'll come to that in a few minutes. What I learned initially from the Argus was that Jack Cannon had started his journalism career with that paper as a teenager. Around 1943, once he turned 18, he resigned and joined the Air Force to fight the Nazis. In October 1944, now 19-year-old Flight Sergeant Jack Cannon was manning the guns in the upper mid turret of an RAF Lancaster bomber on a big raid over Germany. There were six other members of the aircrew, five Australians and a Yorkshireman, and Jack had lived and flown with these young men for the past nine months. Their Lancaster was high above the target, which was the Krupp Armament Works at Essen, when Flack ripped up through the fuselage right beside Jack. After that, he didn't know anything, until he awoke 12 hours later. It was morning. He was beneath a tree, soaked in water, covered in blood, suffering concussion, lacerations, bruises and a swollen leg. The Lancaster was nowhere to be seen. What the hell had happened? How was he on the ground, alive, without a plane and without a parachute? Jack was in a forest. Struggling up, he grabbed a stick to support himself and staggered off. Encountering a man, Jack put a knife to his neck and spoke German to demand information about where he was. The man replied in perfect English to tell him he was on an estate in Norfolk in England. This man, who turned out to be a groundskeeper, took Jack to a turreted castle called Houghton Hall that makes Downton Abbey look like a modest dwelling. The aristocrats who owned this estate looked after Jack until he was taken to a military hospital. When he'd recovered a little, Jack's superiors told him what they'd learned. After being shot up, with Jack unconscious in his turret but everyone else unhurt, the Lancaster's pilot had managed to fly the badly damaged bomber back across the North Sea. The winter weather was terrible and the plane was laden with ice. Over Norfolk, he sent an SOS to the airbase where he was going to try and land. The plane didn't make it, crashing into a forest on the Houghton Hall estate and erupting in a series of fireballs as its unspent bombs and bullets exploded. Five of the crew were killed instantly. Another man died two hours later after being pulled from the wreckage. Jack was the only survivor. No one knew how he'd survived the crash. Jack's best guess was that he'd been blown up into the air when the plane exploded, and because he was unconscious at the time and his body was limp, he'd then survived plummeting back through trees to land clear of the inferno. Then he'd staggered two miles to where he'd awoken with amnesia 12 hours later. However it had happened, Jack would for the rest of his life believe it had been a miracle. After the war, Jack went back to work for the Argus and was one of its sports writers until the start of 1950 when he briefly became a police roundsman. Already that year, he'd walked Hampton Beach with police searching for a -a three-and-a-half-year-old missing girl named Margaret McCann, and he'd accompanied detectives on a murder manhunt in the freezing Gippsland Hills. Now here Jack was, chasing a ghost in Heidelberg. His article about the spooky stakeout appeared on the Argus's front page and continued on its back page. Here's what he wrote, quote, Last night, I and ten other amateur Sherlock Holmeses hid in the shadows of Heidelberg's haunted house to spot the mysterious wrapper on windows. When Argus cameraman Len Drummond and I crept behind a thick hedge in the garden just after eight o'clock, nobody else was in sight. But as the night wore on, other amateur sleuths arrived. One man, who looked rather like a mystery prowler, sneaked towards us, then walked away and spoke to two other sightseers. He returned and asked us if we were reporters. He had come, he said, from Pasco Vale, because he was interested in ghosts and poltergeists and wanted to see what was going on. I told him to go farther away and whistle if he saw anything. He went away. After 45 minutes, a shadow approached. It was a black cat. We saw that cat, or four other cats, within the next 15 minutes. Suddenly, a dog barked loudly. We crawled on our stomachs and saw a Great Dane chained to the fence across the road. It seemed to have scented us. Apparently someone telephoned the police because a few minutes later, a constable came along with a drawn baton and told us to get to hell out of it. We crept into the street and saw that nine other people were at various vantage points, keeping the haunted house under observation. All these spectators must have kept the prowler away because there were no mysterious wrappings on the house last night. Reading this, Jack came off as a fairly sceptical sort, though, as I said, I had a feeling that his extraordinary wartime survival might have left him with an open mind. Then I stumbled on a 2013 book called Legacy of the Lancasters, written by British aviation expert Martin W. Bowman. The book includes an entire chapter about Jack's miraculous escape. Also, miraculous is that this chapter contains descriptions of Jack's attitude towards the supernatural in relation to that crash. Martin W. Bowman describes how, on leave in London two weeks before the crash, Jack had convinced two of his Australian crewmates to go and see an Australian fortune teller named Evadne Price, who was then famous in London. But he didn't go and see her by chance. Jack's editor at the Argus was Keith Atterwill, and this man's brother was married to Evadne. So before Jack went off to war, Keith had asked him to look her up if he got the opportunity. Jack and his two mates went to see Evadne, who was also a playwright and actress, appear in one of her plays, and afterwards they went to her place for drinks. Here's how Martin W. Bowman describes Jack's visit. Quote, Evadne was living at Church Path, Hellingly, in the old house alongside the churchyard, known as Prior's Grange, once said to have been inhabited by monks. Canon was convinced they inhabited it still. Church Path, with its cottages fronting onto the churchyard, was an intimate, tranquil place, but Canon found it creepy in a déjà vu kind of way. After Jack's mates had gone to sleep for the night, Evadne told him what she'd seen. Quote, “In a fortnight's time, those two boys upstairs are going to be killed. I can see you coming out of a wood with your face bleeding and with an injured leg, walking with the aid of a stick. Jack hadn't taken it too seriously at the time, but two weeks later the fortune teller's words haunted him. Learning all of that, I can't help but think Jack Cannon was a believer who hoped to see a ghost that night at the Heidelberg house. The one other thing I learned about Jack was that he was such a stylish dresser that he'd been given a newsroom nickname, Dapper Jack. Unfortunately, Dapper Jack wasn't the one to catch Jack the Rapper. If he had been, we would have had a headline for the ages. Dapper Jack's disappointment at not catching Jack the Rapper didn't stop other people from staking out the heights over the next two nights. Etta's niece Myra was not amused, telling the Age newspaper, quote, Parties of curious sightseers, amateur sleuths, and poltergeist investigators surrounded the house with the result that the prowler was scared away and the police trap collapsed. Senior Detective Newton said testily, quote, Interference and intrusion by outsiders hampers the police and makes their task of capturing an already elusive prowler doubly hard. The longer the prowler is at large, the more unnerving it is becoming for a number of women in the house. If Mrs. Byrne learns of the prowler, she may, in her present critical state of health, suffer a relapse. The Herald sums it up for readers, quote, Senior police officers are upset at the apparent inability of Melbourne's crime-fighting apparatus to solve what appears on the surface to be a simple job of throwing a cordon around the house and the area. What was even more embarrassing was that this story of police failure was making news across the country. The Hobart Mercury headline of the 18th of July is a good example. Jack the Rapper has Melbourne police baffled. Then Melbourne police... And everyone else in Australia became more baffled when it was reported that the jack attacks had been happening elsewhere.
0: Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news! Ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's Amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
1: An extended family living in a modest single fronted cottage in Albion Street, West Brunswick reported they'd been increasingly terrorized by a night prowler for the past month. The matriarch of the house, Mrs. Lord, said that the stalker made his first visit while she and her mother-in-law were sitting in the kitchen listening to the radio. They heard the wire screen ripped from the window of the back bedroom her teenage son shared and later found two footprints on the garden bed outside. On Wednesday night, the 12th of July, just hours before Detective Rayner had his encounter with the hooded man, the Lords had seen a creepy shadow figure under a peppercorn tree in their backyard. He'd returned the next night, appearing at a window, pulling off a screen, and running away. It was on Friday the 14th of July that the knocking began at the Lord House, happening much as it did in Heidelberg on separate occasions over several hours. On Saturday night for the Lords, there was no knocking, but they found their dog Prince in the backyard with a deep wound in its ear, seemingly caused by an axe found laying nearby. On Sunday night, the Lords got a reprieve, and that was the same evening the Heights was hammered all night with the detectives inside. Then, on Monday night, while Jack Cannon was staking out the Heidelberg house, Jack the Rapper, or someone imitating him, returned to West Brunswick for three attacks at 8.30, 11.30 and 1.15am. On one of these occasions, some of the residents got a look at him. Mr Lord, a World War II veteran with heart trouble, told Sydney's Daily Telegraph, quote, The household was almost hysterical and we dashed into the backyard. In the beam of a torch, I caught the outline of a man. He was tall and fairly well built. He ran quickly out of the beam and escaped over the back fence. On Tuesday night, there was knocking again at the West Brunswick house. After midnight, the fiend was back at the heights, making his racket between 2.45 and 6.30 a.m. He'd now struck there on 12 of the past 17 nights. That Wednesday evening, three armed Brunswick police guarded the Lord's house. And these officers were supported by 20 local football and polo players who patrolled backyards and lanes. As The Age reported, teenage amateur guardsmen last night rigged floodlights, which, although kept off, could be switched on at an instant's notice. In addition, tripwires were placed all over the yard. Jack the Rapper didn't show. Brunswick police weren't even sure if they were after the same culprit who was terrorising Heidelberg. The Age reported, The backyard of Mr Lord's home has many sheds, several horse stalls, and a number of ice carts are parked there. Police say the prowler's knowledge of the lie of the land marks him down as a local resident who is familiar not only with the area but also with Mr Lord's backyard and surrounding lanes. Maybe but the description of the prowler, his M.O., his agility, all did suggest it was at least possible one Jack the Rapper was responsible. While it was all quiet on the West Brunswick front the night of the stakeout, the next night across town at Heidelberg, the Fiend was upping the stakes. At around eight o'clock, the Heights was hit by another burst of knocking. Except now the rapper seemed to be able to be in two places at once and adopting a new scare tactic. At around 7.30, a little down the road, a shower of rocks and screenings fell on a house owned by a Mrs. Cameron. Her 13-year-old son Walter ran outside and saw a tall, slender man dressed in black escaping along a laneway. The kid chased this figure, lost him, and then ran to the nearby house where his older brother lived. As Walter arrived, a barrage of stones slammed into that place as well. Projectiles clattered on the roofs of two other homes and neighbours gathered and police arrived. During the attack, which lasted for two hours, Mrs Cameron, a constable, another Argus reporter and two other people were hit by these stones, though no one was seriously hurt. What added to the intrigue was that Mrs Cameron had two cocker spaniels who would have barked at anyone on her property. Her neighbour, Mrs Dawson, had nine bulldogs who would have eaten any intruder in her yard. The Argus reported, quote, A policeman said that either the stones were coming from a long distance or were being thrown by somebody known to the dogs. When the stone throwing happened again the next night, Mrs Cameron added to the mystery by saying, quote, It has been going on for nearly three years, with sometime a spell of a few months. Whoever is responsible is the only person getting any enjoyment from the bombardments. Keeping a sense of humour, she added, quote, If the screenings continue to arrive as they have in the past two nights, we shall soon have sufficient to build a badly needed side path. The rest of the neighborhood wasn't necessarily seeing the funny side. The Argus described how they reacted. Neighbours carrying torches joined the police and scoured the entire area thoroughly. About 40 friends and relatives who mounted guard in a circle around the house with torches, sticks and waddies were unable to trace the source of the rocks and quantities of small metal screenings which fell on the house. These escalations in West Brunswick and in Heidelberg ensured that the story was front page all over Australia. The Argus headlined a follow-up article, Rocks Follow Knox, and ran a photo of Mr. Lord holding the axe in one hand and poor little prince with his bandaged ear in the other. A writer with Smith's Weekly in Sydney took delight in mocking his Melburnian counterparts. Quote, The Melbourne Daily Press reached semi-hysterical heights last week by giving a knock-by-knock description of the affair. They descended on the haunted house like locusts. Readers were told the prowler could run like a deer, jump like a kangaroo, disappear into thin air. On one night, infuriated police allege it was not possible to poke a bush or look behind a tree without finding a pressman. A policeman had supposedly told Smiths, If this keeps up, the Korean Affair will soon be pushed off the front page. The Korean Affair? That was the Korean War, then just a month old, with American forces looking like they were about to be annihilated. If the Jack the Rapper story had been strange so far, it became even stranger with a quadruple twist that ended up posing even more questions. On the night of Friday the 21st of July, bulldog-owning Mrs. Dawson of Heidelberg went into her yard because her mutts were barking. Through a hole in her fence, she saw a kid pick up a big stone and hurl it onto her neighbour Mrs. Cameron's roof. Mrs. Dawson grabbed him, got his name, and reported him to the police, who interviewed the boy the next day, though what happened in that interrogation wasn't made public. All the police said was that he was 15 years old and had been interviewed about the stone-throwing. Next, on the 23rd of July, Julieta Agatha Byrne died at the Heights. She passed out of her rich and long life without knowing that all of Australia had spent the past week talking about her and her house. The Melbourne Herald's front-page article the next day was headlined, Death at House of Knox. In that same article, though, came the third twist, a quote from a senior police officer. He said, We think we have established who was doing the knocking, so we took the guard away last week. Did that mean it had been the 15-year-old boy? No, it didn't. On the 31st of July, there was a little Herald article headlined, No police action on knockings. The article said, quote, Police have closed the case of the Heidelberg knockings. They are satisfied that the prowler at whom a policeman said he had shot as he scaled a fence had nothing to do with the knockings. Police said today that the knockings were a nuisance, but they were not connected with the death recently of Mrs. J.A. Byrne. The article continued. A senior policeman said today, We know the cause of the knockings, but will not take any action. We guarded the house thoroughly and saw nobody running from it, after the knockings occurred. The mystery of the mystery deepened with the ages headline the next day. It said it was, quote, an inside job, and its article read, The recent prowler at a large home in Heidelberg was just a myth, police say. It is thought the knocking at the Banksia Street house of the late Mrs. Byrne was an inside job. The article continued, A senior officer stated yesterday, We now know the cause of the knocking. But no action can be taken. The house was thoroughly guarded, yet no one was seen running from it after the knocking occurred. That was pretty much what the Herald had reported, but now the age elaborated saying, quote, The shot fired by a Heidelberg detective shortly after the first knocking was reported is now thought to have been fired at a shadow rather than a fleeing figure of a tapping prowler. Of a tapping prowler, of a tapping prowler of a tapping prowler. prowler, 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 As for the Jack the Rapper story, that was that. As far as the police were concerned, the case was closed, and the newspapers soon lost interest. But these answers, at least to me, only raise a lot more questions. If the rapping had been an inside job, who'd been doing it and why? How had he, she or they not been busted by the police, given that detectives were in the house on numerous occasions when the noises occurred? If anyone, niece Myra, the German couple, the three nurses, hadn't been accounted for when the rapping was happening, surely they would have been suspects. And if the police knew who'd been responsible, why couldn't they take any action? This inside job had been a huge waste of their resources and caused considerable distress and disturbance in the community and how to explain Detective Rayner chasing and shooting at a leaping prowler that he described in detail, now being written off as nothing more than a shadow. It was possible the officer had panicked and made up the story to save himself embarrassment. But remember also that Senior Detective Newton and Detective Rayner were at the house early in the morning of Sunday the 16th and heard not just the noises, but also the footsteps outside. And if Detective Rayner had made up his description, how was it that a very similar-looking figure, also possessed of great speed and agility, was seen by the young Walter on the night the stones fell and by the terrified Lord family of Brunswick? Were they making it up too, based on what they'd read? Or had they succumbed to some form of mass hysteria? Or was it possible that Etta Byrne hadn't been as comatose as had been believed, and had been unwittingly making these noises, and then when police discovered the truth, they wrote it off as an inside job they couldn't investigate and could take no action over because they were simply embarrassed? I really wish I had the answers. The beneficiaries of Etta's will weren't made public. But in September 1950, the Heights went up for sale. If the wrapping had been some sort of ploy to force this outcome, it couldn't have gone according to plan because the property went to auction and was bought for nearly £8,000 by the nearby Austin Hospital. The Heights from here on in was going to be used as accommodation for nurses. Maybe that was fitting given that nurses had already been living there. What happened next suggested a motive for Jack the Rapper that was far more sinister than anything we've countenanced before. I said at the start of this show that the story of Jack the Rapper was like a horror movie. And of course, an effective horror movie often comes with one last twist just when you think it's over. Cut to the night of the 5th of December, 1951. Heidelberg police are doing another all-night stakeout. That's because a tall, thin man dressed all in black and with a hat pulled down low on his head is terrifying nurses who live in the grounds of the Austin Hospital and a nearby nursing residence called Torreyburn. For the past 11 days, this prowler has been peering into nurses' bedrooms, rapping on their windows and ringing their doorbells. He's also been hiding in hedges and accosting girls coming home from late duty. The girls now band together if they have to go anywhere, and even though it's summer, they make sure they keep all windows closed and all doors locked. The police have been summoned three times, but now they're guarding the nurses and their matron and hiding in the grounds in the hope of nabbing this prowler. Not surprisingly, this story will make the front page of the Argus the next day. What's strange, though, is that this newspaper, the one that had sent Dapper Jack to find Jack the Rapper, won't in its article make any connection between the cases, despite the suspect's description, his M.O. and the location. As for the creep stalking the nurses, he'll stop as abruptly as he started and he won't be caught. At least 70 years later, it's safe to say he's no longer out there. While Jack the Rapper remains a mystery, we at least know what became of Dapper Jack. Not too long after the haunted house stakeout, he rejoined the Air Force and for a time was its publicity officer, serving in Malta and in the Suez Zone. Then Jack went back to newspapers and enjoyed a long career as a reporter and columnist. In the 1970s, he became a familiar face in Melbourne lounge rooms when reading sports for Channel 9, and as late as 1990, he was still writing and editing for the Herald Sun. Jack Cannon passed away in 2007. But Jack's legacy lives on. His nephew, Bill, was inspired by him to become a Melbourne journalist. And Bill's son, named Jack Cannon, is also a successful Melbourne reporter and producer. And he was kind enough to help me out with this podcast. My name is Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back with a new episode in the second week of July. In the meantime, check out my other show, Australia On This Day, for a daily dose of forgotten and not-so-forgotten Australian history. If you're a fan of either show, I'd love you to leave a rating, review or comment on whatever podcast platform you use. This show was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening.